the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. One of the obvious benefits of blockchain technology is the ability to track transactions, no matter how many times funds change hands. That's pretty useful if your funds have been stolen. It doesn't mean you can easily get your funds back, but there are ways to monitor where your funds end up. The FBI in the United States have used blockchain tools to catch thieves and in one case kept a BDI on a crypto wallet that was suspected to contain stolen funds. It remained dormant in that wallet for years until one of the thieves decided he needed some money and he went out and made a relatively small purchase. As soon as the funds moved out of the flagged wallet, the FBI pounced and they caught their man. Cryptos have been associated with some audacious scams, such as Mirror Trading International, which is, to our shame, a South African-born scheme that roped in more than 29,000 Bitcoin from people all over the world. And it was promising returns, believe it or not, of 10% per month. But the latest stats from research group Chain Analysis notes that crypto scam volume dropped by nearly half in 2022 to about $6 billion. Still a pretty big number. That drop is due in part to market conditions as scam performance tends to decline when crypto prices are also in decline. There's another factor at play here, and that is the availability of some pretty sophisticated tools to track down funds that have been scammed. One of these is developed right here in South Africa by the CSIR. Carol Diacha is research group leader for distributed ledger technologies at the CSIR, and he joins us to discuss some of the trends he's observed in the ever-creative field of scamming. Hi, Carl. It's good to talk to you again, and you are here in the studio. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks. It's great to be back. Good. Let's start off with a particular case where a MoneyWeb reader reached out to us, and we reached out to you to help solve a case of funds that had been stolen from him where the company was offering this fantastic profit of $80,000 if he deposited $100,000 with them. And this is all going to happen in two weeks. So he's pretty much going to make an 80% return in two weeks. Sounds too good to be true, right? (laughs) Well, uh, when the victim tried to withdraw his funds, um, which when he looked at his dashboard, you know, and this is obviously a fake dashboard, it was showing a profit of $130,000. And he was told that he needed to pay taxes and other also, you know, various other types of fees in order to get his profit. Now, you managed to find these funds, and you have developed a tool that helps you do this. Do this. Tell us what actually happened there. In this case, those are fantastic returns, by the way. Like you say, it is almost a bit too good to be true. Um, in this case, the victim was lured into this investment scheme through Uh, through Bitcoin. So the criminals lured him into depositing Bitcoin into their wallets, um, which they would then uh, grow and 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 provide a return for this this victim. So I want to say fortunately, it was a very unfortunate case, of course, but fortunately it was Bitcoin and not just straight US dollars or South African rands or any other fiat currency as we know it, because the Bitcoin blockchain is completely transparent and we can see any transaction that happens anywhere in the world and dissect it as it happens um, on the Bitcoin blockchain. So the victim in this case provided us with all the necessary information of the deposits and the Bitcoin transfers from his wallets. And then we dug into the blockchain and we traced these transactions and the funds as they moved along with time. And at some point or another, you know, the criminal would want to change his Bitcoin because he can't do much with Bitcoin. So he would either want dollars or rands or, you know, something to do with it, some, some fiat money so that he can spend it. 
and it's at that point where we can possibly um, intervene and catch him. So, um, and th in this case, he did do that. So there was a bunch of transactions from the initial deposit into his wallet uh, until it inevitably led to some exchanges abroad, uh, Binance, FTX, and some others. Um, and in our case, we could then map out these transactions. We could then write a technical report and send these report, this report to the exchanges at which the funds reside at that time. Um, and if there's any funds left, you know, then the account could be frozen by these exchanges and they do usually comply to such a report, especially if there's a lawyer's letter attached to it. Um, so it's no guarantee. There's a possibility that the criminal could have already withdrawn their funds from that platform. But at least, at the very least, we can identify who the criminal is and that could assist law enforcement with uh, possible successful prosecution or litigation. Right. I spoke about this case that involved the FBI where they were trying to track down these stolen funds and they knew pretty much like you've done or explained in this particular case, they knew where the Bitcoin was sitting and they just watched it and watched it and watched it. And I think it went on for months, perhaps even years. And then the guy needed to make a relatively small purchase of a few dollars. And that was the point they were able to catch him. So explain how they could do that. That is such a fantastic story, you know, it's such a fantastic case study of how this works and how the transparency of Bitcoin uh, can lead to successful prosecution. It actually is a deterrent to scammers and criminals around there. I think you'll be much more successful. There's a higher chance of being successful if you try to, to do criminal activities with the US dollar actually than Bitcoin, you know, because it's so transparent. So in this case, yes, there, it was hackers that stole something like three and a half billion dollars worth of Bitcoin from uh, an exchange called Bitcoin. And they they sat on that money. They knew they couldn't move it. They knew they couldn't spend it or use it because the whole world was watching that money sit on the blockchain and just waiting for a transaction to happen. It was a couple, a man and a, and a, and a woman. And then the, the wife of the couple, she went and bought a $500 Walmart gift card. That's it. $500 out of $3.5 billion. And that transaction... Uh, revealed her email address, which she needed to receive the gift card. And that email address was enough for the U.S. authorities to arrest them within hours after the transaction actually happened. And this was a U.S. couple? Yeah, yeah, it was. It's, it's quite a fascinating uh, story and couple uh, but if it, you look it, it up. It does make you wonder. I mean, if they're sitting there on $3.5 billion and they know that they're being watched and they can't, what's the point? Yes, exactly. It's frozen money. And I think more and more criminals are realizing this, you know. Like, you know, the amount of criminal activity uh, is dropping very, very quickly. Uh, that happens on the Bitcoin blockchain, for instance. Because, you know, authorities are getting provided with the right amount of information and tools in order to successfully clamp down on these things. You know, more and more people are getting informed of the transparency, the transparent nature of the Bitcoin blockchain, for instance. And this is definitely a big deterrent now, nowadays to criminals. You know, I think the Chainalysis report uh, labels criminal activity on the Bitcoin blockchain at less than 1% of the total uh, transaction volume. Right, because this is one of the big criticisms that has been leveled against Bitcoin is that it is so open to scammers and fraud and so on. Uh, and it is interesting to see that we are watching a drop here. However, the chain analysis, the latest one, that report that I just mentioned in the introduction, it does say that criminal activity tends to decline along with market conditions. So if we hit another bull market, are we likely to see another spike in criminal activity? 
That's an interesting way to look at it um, and an interesting metric. It's definitely something that I'll keep an eye on, you know, when the market volatility and, and the excitement around the Bitcoin market returns. And then we'll see if uh, if there's any correlation between, um, you know, criminal activity and market dynamics. What is the name of this tool that you've developed at the CSIR for mapping or tracking blockchain transactions? It's called ExoChain. So basically, it is something that uh, that looks at the Bitcoin blockchain and maps out transactions, you know, as I mentioned, because it's so transparent. Now, you can do this manually. Because the Bitcoin blockchain is transparent, you know, you can just dig into it and uh, try to map them out manually. But that will take you weeks because there's about 10 transactions happening every second globally. And you, you, know, you need to filter through all of them. And it's very easy for a criminal to do a whole lot of transactions very, very quickly to try and obfuscate their, um, their methodologies. Now, uh, there's a few global players in this. Uh, so it's Chain Analysis and Elliptic and CypherTrace. So there are global players in this, but this is the first South African endeavor and perhaps the first of its size and even in the Southern Hemisphere that uh, tries that, that, that harvests this data from the Bitcoin blockchain um, and then processes it, it in such a way that we can get intelligent reports of transactions and criminal activity uh, from that. This is aimed at regulators, law enforcement, uh, and then as well as retailers, you know, and crypto asset service providers that need to comply to anti-money laundering and anti-terrorist financing laws around the world. I want to come back to that in a minute, but what trends are you noticing in financial scams that do involve blockchain and Bitcoin? They, they seem to be incredibly creative in the way that, we, that they're doing this. You know, they, it often starts on social media, right? The people, and it starts with extravagant returns. So pick it up from there and tell us what you're seeing. <laughs> you know, some of the trends are, most of the trends actually are not really new. It is the same old thing as, uh, probably as old as humanity itself. You know, it's a, it's a promise of returns it's too good to be true it is a method or a way to um to hook you and to to build a trust with the relationship between the victim and the criminal and then ultimately it's extracting as much money out of the victim as you possibly can now you know with a typical pyramid or a ponzi scheme those returns usually do realize in the beginning until such time as it collapses and in other cases, there's no returns, like there's no payouts ever. And, you know, they will just try and uh, extract as much money out of you as possible with time. Now, cryptocurrency is just the new shiny thing, you know, that that, that criminals use to lure uh, victims into their schemes. You know, it's in, before cryptocurrency, it was just the Internet. You know, there's, there's been so many scams on the Internet. If you if you think back of the early Internet, and I think that the amount of scams probably is still the same or more even. But we've learned with time to navigate it. You know, we've, we've learned what a suspicious link or a suspicious email looks like. And we kind of ignore that. There's also a lot of tools that's being developed to protect users of the Internet from scams, for example, antivirus tools, browsers that's gotten intelligent and so we don't have that yet in crypto. You know, so a lot of the stuff is very new in crypto, a lot of the wallets and the infrastructure and the tools that we as, as users use. Um, and the scammers know that. And that's why it's, it's such a popular method for them to do that. The other thing is education. So most people, they get drawn, investors get drawn to crypto for the returns. Um, and it's sometimes difficult for them to distinguish between the returns and the real thing. 
and what other people are promising them. Um, and, you know, they, they get lured into that and unfortunately become victims of scams. Right. And, of course, they often look fairly legitimate because they'll have a website. Um, in this particular case that we mentioned earlier where you were involved in tracking down these funds, the company was called, it wasn't really a company, it didn't exist, but they called themselves Main Trade. They have a website, or they had one. But if you go onto the website and you, you look at their registration certificate, that's the first thing you want to look at. You know, Are they registered as a company? Are they regulated by any financial authority around the world? You don't see any of that unless it's fake. So it does require a certain level of savvy to understand what you should be looking at. One of the things that I always find in all these scams that I look at is bad English mm. on the website. You know, they make grammatical errors. Well, that's a very easy thing to fix, you know, if you just run it through a you know, word processor like Word. But they don't even bother to do that. So that tells you, you know, it's probably a non-English speaking part of the world and they don't have the registration, the company registration. And if they have a phone number, which I actually phoned up in this particular case, uh, it was a Cape Town number, and I got redirected to somewhere else in the world. I have no idea where it was, uh, asking for information about this particular uh, victim of theft. And uh, you know, I was just told that she's not in. You know, she, she's not going to give me any information because it's private client confidentiality. But she did actually answer a phone. It just didn't go into a black hole. What are some of the other things that people could be looking out for if they feel? a little bit suspicious about yeah. uh, an offer. I don't want to generalize, you know, but I think some of the things that we've seen in the past, some of it include charismatic leaders, you know, very flashy things like you say, like a website, um, anything that would establish some sort of trust between the scammer and the victim. So they will go to a great length. Some of them even contact you on WhatsApp, you know, and they become your friends. I've even heard of this, where the scammer actually, where the victim actually thinks that the scammer is a real friend and they trust would trust them with their life almost, you know. So I think, you know, it's a combination of things. It changes very, very quickly. But the golden rules apply. If it's too good to be true, then it probably is. If the returns look too are too high if you don't know the person if there's like bad english like you mentioned those kind of things i would be very very wary always stay with established trusted institutions in south africa the you know the crypto asset service providers the, the big ones are luna and valor and just watch out that you don't end up on the wrong website by the way you know like if you if you do um connect with these large exchanges some of the larger crypto asset service providers um there's a few more of them i don't want to single out only those but you know just make sure that you aren't being fished so it means you are on the right website and don't trust any representatives that you talk to on these platforms because there's a bunch of fake profiles of the CEOs and the managers and whatever on, on all the social media pages. So just interact directly with these platforms and, and ultimately test it out. I think, you know, that's the main thing is, is people do jump into investment schemes and scams with their life savings sometimes without actually even attempting to educate themselves. If you do want to invest in something, you know, take a hundred rand and invest in it, play around with it, look at all the functions. May, you know, if you do want to get exposure to Bitcoin, for example, and you want to, um, you know, invest in, 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 in cryptocurrencies, take a hundred rand to Luna, buy a hundred rands worth of Bitcoin, but then go a bit further, withdraw it. So send it off Luna. Send, maybe send it to your neighbor as a gift or something like that, you know. And that experience alone will probably put you in the top 1% of, 
of crypto investors in the world, I want to say. You know, but, but people have an inherent fear for trying out new things. But I would say spend a little time in actually experiencing this technology before you just dive deep into um, into investing. You mentioned earlier the gray listing by the Financial Action Task Force that was earlier this year. And that was because they identified weaknesses in South Africa's ability to plug money laundering and terrorist financing, basically. Do you think the regulations around crypto, which are now coming into force, are going to help with this? I mean, it clearly seems from a timing point of view, it was designed to soften the impact of this uh, gray listing. Yeah, so the FATF does label South Africans' compliance to new technologies or fintech or cryptocurrencies as non-compliant, our ability to fight money laundering and anti-terrorist financing. But that's just one of 40 recommendations that the FATF make. Um, And there were a number of them in which we are non-compliant. I have to say, I have to commend the regulator actually, uh, the Financial Sector Conduct Authority, that did publish, um, that, that did actually label crypto assets as financial products shortly before the Financial Action Task Force re- re- released the report, actually. So th- that was a big step in complying with that re- recommendation. So from that time now, I think from November, all South African crypto asset service providers needs to register under the FIC Act, which makes them financial institutions and obliges them to report on certain suspicious activity back to the relevant authorities. Now, this suspicious activity can include, for instance, processing transactions that that originate from sanctioned entities. Like, for instance, if now, if there's an exchange in South Africa and there's Bitcoin that's, um, that originates from a, from a Russian wallet, for instance, or that originate from a sanctioned scammer or criminal around the world, then that crypto asset service provider, that exchange must take action. They must freeze the account and report that transaction to the relevant authorities. I do think that this goes a long way to protecting end users, investors and users of cryptocurrency in South Africa. But there's also a fine balance to be struck. If we, for instance, look at the US, I'm of the opinion that they are overreaching currently with their regulations. You know, I don't think they need to to treat investors as children and protect them to such an extent. I think that, you know, there's some balance to be struck. And in South Africa, I think we are closer to striking the right balance, but it's always a matter of this, of, of debate between industry and the regulators. Why do you say the U.S. is overreaching? For, uh, for what reason? It's mainly related to the SEC. Um, and the SEC, you know... Yeah, that's the Security Exchange Commission. The Exchange, Exchange Commission. The there's a lot of crypto asset service providers. There's a lot of the industry that's moving out of the U.S. and establishing a global footprint, you know, limiting services to non-U.S. citizens only. So there's a, there's a lot of precedent currently, a lot of things happening in the U.S. And I think that, you know, their current administration is not treating this industry um, correctly. The name of your product again? What is it? ExoChain. ExoChain. I was going to say ExoNet. ExoChain. Are you getting approaches from law enforcement and others to help them in their investigations? It certainly sounds like they could use it, or even the FSCA could use it. 
Yeah, it's still early days. We are in proof concept stage. So we have a three-year roadmap to develop uh, our product into a commercially viable um, piece of software, which then we hope to compete with some of the global giants out there. We have been approached by certain law enforcement. We're also, you know, making them aware of that, that we are doing this development. We're also, you know, actively looking for early funding early development funding partners uh, now. You know, the, the the CSR is partly funding this project, but um, we are also looking for other people to partner with us on this. So, you know, but yeah, various law enforcement agencies um, have been, have, have made contact with us. It, you know, it's the police service, the FSCA very actively. We are um, deeply in discussion with the FCA, the FIC, the um, South African Reserve Bank, and a whole lot of others. So it's positive to see. I think this. I hope that this asset, that this this software, would become a strategic asset to the state. You know, this this data from the Bitcoin blockchain and from other crypto asset blockchains are extremely valuable, especially in processed forms. You know, there's a lot of things that you can derive from this data other than just um, criminal and anti-money laundering or terrorist financing um, and those kind of things. You know, you can also monitor exchange controls and um, and tax evasion and even the liquidity status of CASPs so that we can prevent another FTX, for example. CASP being a crypto asset service provider. That's correct. Yeah, anyone that holds crypto like a custodian. All right. So we've spoken a lot about scammers um, and the tools that you are that you have developed to hunt them down. So I don't want to get too negative on crypto itself because we might be feeding into that fear that is already there. Th- there is a case for for crypto, investing in crypto, and getting to understand it. This is a new asset class. I, I want to ask you. Uh, when you got involved in crypto, how did you get involved? Are you a trader? Are you a hodler, as they say, which is somebody who buys Bitcoin and just holds? What are you? Yeah, the last thing I want to do is scare people off from crypto. You know, it's such a fantastic industry. And really, it's um, it's mind-blowing um, and how interesting it is and uh, such a dynamic industry. And so I would really encourage people to get involved, to just be careful. And as I mentioned, educate yourself properly first. The best way to educate yourself is not to go watch a YouTube video, but to actually experience it, you know, take a little bit of money and, 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 and dive into the experience and figure it out and press the wrong buttons and all that. Um, and so I do think cryptocurrency and the blockchain is, industry has a very, very bright future. There's a lot of things happening. Um, I, I personally got involved in it and back in 2016, you know, and it, I was completely hooked and it became a passion almost immediately for me. I do not trade because I'm, in, I'm a very emotional trader. You know, I tend to buy at the wrong times and sell at the wrong times. But what I've done is to build a, a bot actually just for myself, you know, which uh, buys al- and sells algorithmically. So that's the way I trade because then I can just leave it. And every time I'm, I manually try to interfere with it um, because I don't agree with it, that's <laughs> when I tend to lose money. <laughs> so, uh, so I don't do that. I, I, I let the computer run its algorithms and it'll buy f- for as it is programmed to do. Um, so, so that's the way I just personally prefer to, to, to trade and to um, get investment exposure. And is this bot just designed for Bitcoin? Only Bitcoin. It is uh, designed for actually a few cryptocurrencies, not only Bitcoin. Um, yeah, it's I'd say probably the main ones: Bitcoin, Ethereum, and and XRP. 
I think that XRP is quite also quite exciting, mainly because it's so cheap to move, you know, funds between exchanges and platforms. Yeah, and of course, crypto trading is popular because it's volatile. Traders yeah. love volatility. They don't like flat, smooth markets. Yes, this last few months have been quite painful, to be honest. Like you say, it's so much more exciting. Even if it's going down, it's okay. You know, we, we live for that adrenaline. We want it. But you, this is only part of what you do is, is the trading side, the automatic computerized trading. The, the rest, you, you're just a hodler buying and holding yes basically i'm um i am doing that uh, i'm i mean for various reasons uh, you know i th- i think i'm more comfortable in cryptocurrency than in fiat currency um especially more comfortable in crypto than in the rand you know so um so i'm i'm a fiat currency minimalist if i can call <laughs> it that <laughs> so your savings do you do you put them into bitcoin yeah yeah i do every I, month then you know i've i've had this discussion with me with myself many times and this debate and trying to think of which uh, which investment classes I feel comfortable with and there's actually nothing you know real estate um, commodities um, fiat currency foreign currency there's there's nothing that I can that I can uh, convince myself to invest in uh, rather than Bitcoin for example. All right, I want to change direction here. We previously spoke to you about your wild idea that ESCOM should start using its spare power during off-peak hours to mine Bitcoin. Got quite a lot of traction and interest in that particular podcast, which we did earlier this year. What was the reaction you got to the suggestion? I'm particularly keen to know if ESCOM reached out to you. <laughs> ESCOM did not reach out to me, actually. Uh, you know, as I, I think that they there's a lot of things happening in ESCOM and they have a lot of fire, fires to fight. So in their defense, I, I don't think they have time for this. Although I do wish they would, uh, you know, it's uh, such a fantastic use case and it's, uh, it, I mean, it could cha- train, change the, di- the the trajectory of not only ESCOM, but this country even. Um, you know, I'm a Bitcoin mining hobbyist or sleuth. Um, and so it's not something that I... Um, uh, that I do commercially, or you know, even even investigate very very deeply. I've, I I mean, I've, um, I'm a technologist in this in this industry, and I do study it. Uh, I do study the technology um, to its core every day, uh, every second that I can, uh, that I have free. Um, but you know, it's not the the mining idea itself is not something I'm I'm, I'm actively pursuing. I'm waiting if if there's any ever any serious commercial interest, I would definitely take it up. Since that conversation that we've had, uh, there's been a few phone calls that happened. Um, there's been a few people that's interested. But, you know, the, the, the ball is mainly in their court. It's not um, something that I would drive personally at this point. I, I see myself more as an advisor at this point. Well, with a lot of IPPs, independent power producers, now springing up and you're going to get this trading and, and wheeling of power, you know, this is producing in one area, selling to another area of the country, it's going to become a far freer market with more interesting opportunities. So you, you might be able to start mining with some of these IPPs during their off-peak hours. Yeah. You know, so these, these are possibilities that are not just for ESCOM, but for, for a lot of other people as well. Yeah, there's a great case study in Texas. In the, um, you know, Texas is, I think, probably one of the most Bitcoin-friendly states in in America, and they they do exactly that. So ERCOT, the uh, the Texas grid operator, which is our ESCOM, do exactly that. So there's uh, very similar to the wheeling agreement. So when there's an excess power in one area, they would switch on miners in that area, and then when there's um, a shortage of power in another, you know, they would. 
uh, switch off miners at that point. So the miner actually acts as a as a large user of electricity, but it's so flexible then, you know, that you can control it finely so that the grid is always balanced between supply and demand. And that benefits everyone. So I think huge, huge opportunity in South Africa. Um, if we could, uh, if we could, but but in South Africa we have a monopoly on the grid operator operating. So, so it is um, it is Eskom that that needs to buy into the idea. And of course, people hear that well, ninety percent of all Bitcoin has already been mined. I don't know what the current figure is, but uh, there's only ever going to be twenty one million. I think we're at nineteen million Bitcoin. Something mined. around there. Something yeah. around that. So people look at it and say, ah, oh, well, the game's nearly over. It's not nearly over. The, probably the fun is only going to start now because this is going to go on well past 2040, you know, because they're halving every four years. There's smaller and smaller release of new supply into the market. And the price is probably going to be a very big dictator of this. You know, if you have a good long-term view of where the price is going to be, mining suddenly becomes quite interesting. Yeah, and, you know, I think that many projections get the variables wrong. There's actually three variables that determine the feasibility of a mining rig or of of mining, um, a mining operation. And that is, first of all, the price of Bitcoin. And then secondly, the amount of mining power that is um, the amount of power that's mining around the world. And then thirdly is the price of electricity. You know, so these things tend to balance out so that is always marginally profitable to mine anywhere around the world. Except, especially if you can get the third variable down as much as possible, the price of electricity, which ESCOM, of course, can, because they, they're the, the prime producers of electricity. And they do produce it at, um, at a very, very, very low cost, especially during off-peak times. So even if the reward or even if the amount of Bitcoin that you mine lowers in future or reduces in future, there's always an opportunity and it will almost always be profitable to mine for many, many, many years to come. Final question, if I'm going to ask you to answer this in a minute or two, is uh, we previously spoke about some interesting developments in the field of payments. For example, the prospect, and this kind of blew my mind, of people uh, getting paid on a per minute or a per second basis. So you open up your laptop, you start working, and your earnings clock is going. So this is a completely radical shift away from this idea that you get paid a monthly salary at the end of the month. You know. And, you know, are there developments happening there since we last spoke that would be interesting to hear about? We are still busy developing that. Um, I is also in proof of concept state at the at the CSR. So it's uh, you know there's so many things that you can do with that. Is for instance, um, one example is a different way to monetize the web. If you we are so used to the web being monetized through ads or through a subscription model. You know, if you want to read a, an article, you either need to see a lot of ads and pop-ups and to in for, for that creator of that article or the writer to, to, to earn some income for his work. Or, you know, you need to pay a subscription fee. Now, the way that we see the future of money and the future of payments happening is that maybe you'll pay a quarter of a cent every second, you know, while you read the article. And as you close the browser tab, you know, the payment stops. We do see payments um, evolving the same way as as information or the consumption of information evolved. You know, in the beginning, we pre-internet days, we used to consume information through in, in bulk through um, television, maybe or radio or telephone, or uh, you know a CD on which you have movies and music or whatever information or a book. Um, but nowadays, we don't consume information like that. You know, if you think about it, you 
you you start the movie anytime you want and you don't download anything you don't keep it on a hard drive you don't do anything and we see payments happening in the same way so you will pay everything on demand you won't pay per month you won't pay your insurance per month you'll pay from the time you start your car to the pa- time you, s- you switch it off um, and we're building the infrastructure for that because cryptocurrency is the only rail that can process micropayments or the streaming of payments uh, in such an extent. You know, it's not possible with conventional financial systems. Fascinating subject. We're going to leave it there. That's a subject for another day. And I do want to pick that up with you about streaming payments or you know, earning salaries by the second. What a wonderful idea. Thank you very much, Carl Yaga, who is Research Group Leader for Distributed Ledger Technologies at the CSIR for coming in. Thank you, Kieran. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.